You'll turn with me back to Romans chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 to 20 as Paul is concluding his prosecution of both Gentile and Jew for sinning and falling short of the glory of God and needing a Savior, being unable to save themselves. We've seen him start this case in verse 18 of chapter 1, lay out the sin of the Gentile world, then turn his guns on the Jews and show the Jews uh, sin as well and need a Savior, answer their excuses. And now he's kind of summing up. He's called his last witness, being God through his word, and then he'll give his summation. We'll look at that next time. We'll focus on verses 13 to 18 this morning. But I want to read 1 to 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, unfa- does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? That good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the great physician. You are the one who gives true heart transplant. You are the one who brings us to repentance and faith through your gospel. You are the one who nurtures us in said repentance and faith through your gospel. So help me this morning to preach your word faithfully, accurately, truthfully, 
passionately, fearfully, tearfully. Just may your word run and be glorified. May it be preached with truth and accompanied by the power of the Spirit to bring conviction and conversion and sanctification. You know what each heart needs, Lord. So help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it as your word. And may the Spirit attend with power that we might either trust Christ for the first time or grow in the grace of trusting Christ. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We trust you for it. We ask for it. We know it is your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Why do I do the things that I do? We get the answer to this, these fundamental questions and especially that last question today. Why do I do what I do? You'll hear people say things like, I can't believe he did that. Or of themselves, I can't believe I did that. See, Paul has said that all are sinful. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, neither gets a pass. Both need a Savior. None are born right with God. Last week we saw that none are righteous, none good, none seek God on, of their own initiative. All lost, all needing a Savior. And as I said, he's begun his closing arguments against all mankind, proving that Gentile and Jew, according to God's standard, have fallen short, are sinners, and need a Savior. That none can stand on their own two feet and say, Lord, I have been good enough for you to accept me. And today, we'll show from Scripture not only that all mankind is sinful and fallen short of the righteousness, but have done so in thought, word, and deed. And it's kind of in um, reverse order here. And we're going to start with words and then with actions and then with thoughts. But, um, but that's what we're looking at. All mankind is sinful and has fallen short of righteousness in thought, word, and deed. And the main point is really something for us to adopt and really hold on to, to believe. Mankind's fundamental problem is a failure to fear God, which results in wicked words and deeds. Man's fundamental problem is a failure to fear God, which results in wicked words and deeds. So what, probably, what we see as he sums up is sin is primarily a heart problem. We know that. It's a heart problem. But let's look first. All mankind fails to fear God with their words. Look at this list. Look what he says. Their throat is an open grave. That should make you make the stink face. Because what's the point? An open grave, rotting flesh, stinks. There's a foul stench to it. And as he describes lost mankind's use of their ability to speak, he says their throat 
is an open grave. Just like stench testifies to an open grave, so sinful words reveal a dead heart. Sinful words are like the foul stench of a rotting corpse. See, one of the reasons we're not more careful with our speech is we don't see how serious it is. And we really, have, we really don't have a way of knowing how offensive to God sinful words are because we are not infinite like He is and holy and pure and righteous the way He is. We really don't see how far short of His glory our words can fall, especially as unbelievers. Not even on our radar, not our concern, but even as believers. We'll see that we have things to learn from this. So you might be saying, well, this is proving the sin of all mankind, so I'm a believer, I can just tune out. No, there's always something for us to learn in every text of Scripture. And he's saying... Of these that don't do good, of these that are under sin, of these that are lost, both Jew and Greek, none have an excuse. All need a Savior because we've sinned and fall short. That one of the primary ways that sin is expressed, and it's therefore he brings the words up front, is through our mouths. I remember the, one of the first things God started cleaning up in me was my mouth. I began to be convicted over the way I spoke. And, and when it started happening, I really didn't even know what all was going on. But God was drawing me and convicting me. But as offensive as an open grave would be to you to look at and smell, it's a picture of how offensive sinful words are to God and should be to us. Nobody wants to be around an open grave. I mean, they, what, what, what did Lazarus' sister say when Jesus was telling them to take the stone away? Lord, old King James, really good. Surely, Lord, by now he stinketh. In other words, please don't do that. You know, Jesus was up to something there and it worked out okay. But their throat as the stench of an open grave. He goes on to say, how does that manifest? What does it look like? They use their tongues to deceive. Deception. Through straight out lies or, or through flattery or various ways that we use our tongues to deceive. They should be truth-speaking tongues. And instead, their deception Speaking tongues. We're born telling lies. In case you wonder, when we do the baby dedication, those babies need a Savior, and it's Jesus, and none of us believe that they're born innocent. Look what Psalm 58.3 says. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The guilt and corruption inherited from Adam in the fall expresses itself. And one of the primary ways it expresses itself is through the use of our tongues. They use their tongues to deceive. See, we lie in order to gain an advantage, to protect ourselves, or to gain an advantage, or to, to serve ourselves in some way. 
we deceive. And deception is far more subtle than we want to imagine sometimes. Half-truths are whole lies. You've heard that said. And you know what white lies are? Lies. It's like white witchcraft. It's what is witchcraft. Look what he says. How many of you love a venomous viper and you want to pet it? Come across a rattlesnake. Isn't he cute? I wouldn't advise that. Look at this. The venom of asps is under their lips. Imagine that. A sinful tongue is like a coiled viper. Ready to strike. With deadly results. The venom of asps. Lies. Deception. Foul language. Coarse joking. All of these things are like poison. And the tongue is like a poisonous snake ready to strike. Quick-tempered people have tongue is coiled all the time. And you do the least thing to pick at their kingdom. But it's not just the quick-tempered. It's a lot of us. When things push against our comfort, our desire, our pleasure, many times we strike out with the tongue. And once you get that, once that word is out there, just like that snake bite, you, better, you can address it, but you can't get it back. When you bit, you bit. And if you're loose with your words and biting people all the time, think about that open grave. Think about how God looks upon it. Our words are powerful. And our words can be devastating. You've heard the old thing, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. When I mentioned lies a while ago, that's a lie. Some of the most painful and longest lasting wounds come from being struck by that viper of the tongue. How are you using your tongue? Are you intentional with the use of your tongue? Are you using it intentionally to build others up? And restraining that desire to strike? Are you, are you, life and death is in the power of the tongue. And, and, and listen, not in the understanding of the word of faith teachers, and I'm not even going to go there. But your tongue is either building up or tearing down. In your house, with those close, why is it we're loosest with our tongue with those that are closest to us? We're most quick to strike with those who are, those who are closest to us. But you're either building those up around you or tearing them down. Emotionally or spiritually, are you building up or demolishing others? Lost people really don't give a thought to that. When, when he's talking about people who are under the law and under sin, and I remember in my own experience, the way I've used my tongue, I remember people like my dad just going to let it fly, right? And some of us as Christians will justify 
our snappy and sharp tongues by saying, that's just who I am. That's just the way God made me. You offend me, you're going to know about it. Well, I got to tell you, God's not responsible for that. And that's not following Jesus. Because our tongues are to be sanctified just like the rest of our speech. But as lost people who just let it flow, God is equating it with the venom of asps and an open grave. And he says this, look at this. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Curses and cursing and bitterness. Like Vesuvius, just, just erupt on people. Jew and Gentile fall short. Fall short. I, rem- I remember, and, and listen, we still have, in growing in grace, we have to struggle with the sanctification of our speech. But I remember as an unbeliever, my mouth was, it was just a sewer. A cesspool. An open grave for sure. Sinners let words fly with little concern and it reveals a lost heart. Slander, gossip, insults, angry words tear others down to build up the self. Foul language. With our words we kill love, we kill hope, we kill joy, we kill peace, we kill happiness. And as believers we're to steward our words carefully. You have a responsibility to steward your word. So we're not just talking about lost people this morning, although the, the way that the, the sinful heart is expressed is the first thing he mentioned is through the mouth. But even as believers, we, we read this and we're, gonna, we're supposed to say, I don't want to be like this. I shouldn't be. Jesus was not like this. Therefore, I should not be this way. We need to steward our words carefully and realize their power and use our tongue for God's glory and others' good. How careful are we with deadly weapons? Like a gun, if we're well trained. Right? We, we don't point guns at people, even unloaded guns. Why? It might not be unloaded, as people have found out recently. You know, we don't, we're not casual with knives. And other things. We use great caution with deadly weapons. How about the tongue? We need to treat it as as though it is as dangerous or more. We need to use great caution with our tongue. We need to have our tongue sanctified. Listen, if you're lost and need a Savior, you cannot change the, the way you speak. You can quell it for a time, but it's still there bubbling up. Maybe you're just holding some of it back. We need a Savior. But even as believers, we struggle. But listen to God's Word, Ephesians 4.29. Now, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So let no deception, let no grave-like talk or venomous talk, let no self-serving talk, injurious talk come out of your mouths. How do I know what that is? Well, here's the opposite of that. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. There's, you, there's a grid. There's a test. Will this build them up? Does it fit the occasion? 
Will it communicate grace? It doesn't mean you're never firm. Look at Jesus. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean not sinfully firm. Only. This is, believer, this is talking about your mouth. No corrupting talk. No grousing. No wicked you know, jokes or, or cursing or all of those things. Some, some people give cursing a pass. It's so weird. You'll see Facebook posts where one post will be praise the Lord and the next post will be expletive. Is that talk? Yes, this is what, part of what this is talking about. Does it glorify God? Is it good for building up? Does it fit the occasion? Will it give grace? In other words, fear God and serve others with your words. And if you happen to be one who has a temper, you need to be praying into that and memorizing verses into that and having others help you so that you don't just vent when people bump into you. If you, if you have a bucket full of water and you kick it, what's going to come out? Water or other things, right? We need to be filling it up with grace, filling it up with the Word so that when we're bumped into, if anything comes out, it's good for building the other person up. You might say, well, I can't say a lot of the things I say if I'm going to do that. Thank you. You've got my point. But I want to be able to express myself. No. Express yourself in a God-honoring way. In an others-loving way. In a Christ-like way. And cut out the corrupting talk. But this is primarily about those who are lost and how that sin expresses themselves. But even as believers, listen, this verse goes for everybody. Jesus said in John, in a, not in John, in Matthew 12, 36, watch this. You think your words are not serious. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for, just for the good words they speak. Look at that. This is Jesus speaking. People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, if you really have faith, it will be vindicated by the way you speak. And your growth in sanctification with the way you speak. But all of us come from the grave dishonoring God with our lips. So, all mankind fails to fear God with their words. Secondly, all mankind fails to fear God with their deeds. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And this is not primarily talking about sort of the voyeur aspect of it when, when there's a, a train wreck or a car wreck or a fight and everybody kind of runs to that. That is participating, especially if it's sinful activity. But this is talking about what we do, our actions, our, our sinful conduct. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. See, Psalm 119.32 tells us that our feet should run in the paths of God's commandments. In other words, feet is our, our action, our, our life, how we, our direction, how we, how we live. And Psalm says we should be running in the way of God's commandments. But instead, because of sin, our feet are employed to conduct men to the deeds of darkest crime. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says. Human history is littered with the destruction 
of life and the sinful destruction of life. Just wars doesn't follow, I mean, you know, things like that. This is murder. Thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill, you know. But human history is littered with the destruction of life. And one of the biggest ones we don't want to face these days is abortion. Abortion is the sinful taking of a life. And listen, if you've been a part of that, there's grace for that, there's forgiveness for that, there's healing, but we need to face it for what it is. People revel in so-called reproductive health while the truth is real human life is being destroyed, mostly for convenience. Oh yeah, what about rape and incense? Did you know that's about 1% of abortions? Well, I'm pro-choice. Me too. Choose what actions you're going to take, but once you take the action, then you have to deal with the consequence. And most of abortions take place because we're not following God in our sexual life, and we're just spreading it around. In this. Or, even with one person, maybe it's a committed relationship, but we're not married. See, the choice is made before the baby's conceived. But once the baby's conceived... If you just wipe it out, that is murder. Did you know approximately one million babies will be aborted this year? And I had a picture, I don't know if I sent it, but look at the, the growth of a baby in the womb, and you know what it is at the very first moment? It's a human. With all the DNA. It's not just a mass of tissue. And it grows, and the more and more it grows, you see that. But that's just the DNA and everything being played out. To con Did you know that in New York, I can't, get, I can't get those people out of my mind. And Hillary Clinton was one of them. But the, what's the former Kumo? Yeah, the mayor of New York, with glee on their face, almost dancing because they had passed a bill to make abortion legal up to full term. Yes. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In New York, up to full term, you can have an abortion. As I said, there's grace and forgiveness if you've been involved in that sin as well as any other. But just because we've done it and been forgiven for it we don't mean we don't speak against it. We adopt God's view of it. And abortion is murder. Always have been, always will be. No way to change that. Just so you know where I stand. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And, and when we run against God's commands, look what it produces. In their paths are ruin and misery. I thought this was going to work out for my good and my peace. But see, misery always attends sin. It might not be right away. Might enjoy sin for a season, but the end thereof is death and there will be misery coming. And the worst thing about it is if you be allowed to enjoy it your whole life and not find the misery until after the grave. But generally speaking, in the paths of sinners are ruin and misery. If we're one that are walking around just flying out sinful words, there's ruin and misery in our path, in our own hearts. And then certainly if we're 
swift to shed blood or participate in it or, or listen, to affirm those who do. The path of sin visits the castle of ruin and misery in this life and the life to come. And then, obviously, verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. The path of peace is God's commandments. It's thinking and living God's way. It's walking faithfully with Him. See, all mankind fails to fear God with their words. They fail to fear God with their deeds. And the path of peace, what everybody wants, are really not there in sin. It's the path of ruin and misery. See, remember, this is not man's opinion. This is God's opinion. This is God's Word. This is Paul showing that Jew and Gentile have violated God's commandments and deserve sinful retribution. And see, I want at the end of this section, I just want to ask you a question. We ask it up front. Why do people do this? Why do people act this way? Why do people justify sin? Why do people walk in sin, speaking sin, doing sin, hanging with those who do, justifying those who do? Thirdly, all mankind fails to fear God in their hearts. See, it all flows from the heart. And verse 18, you'll notice in this section, is, is Paul's crowning evidence and accusation that he brings forth. This is the root of all of the fruit of sinful words and deeds. He said, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And listen, let me point you back to our Ecclesiastes series. If you want to hear a whole sermon on fear of God, and talk, it's there. We'll talk a little bit about it this morning. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean before their eyes? The eyes of our understanding. Notice our eyes direct our paths, don't they? In order for me to walk off this stage without breaking my neck and walk down that row right there, I have to be able to see or somebody has to lead me. Somebody else who has eyes that work. Our eyes direct our paths and lost people don't have fearing God as their eyes. They don't have fearing God before their eyes. It's not their primary concern. So when they choose their words and they choose their deeds, it's not coming through a grid of fearing God and what would love God. It's... it's we have our me glasses on. Self. What do I want? What pleases me? What seems to work for me? See, the fear of God is not the sinner's primary concern when they choose their words and deeds. But what is the fear of God? Well, just a little summary. Remember from Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord is putting Him first out of love. It's a humble reverence for Him. It's a love for Him and a delight in Him because of His goodness to us. It's submitting to His rule with faith and joy. It's a strong desire to please Him in all that we do. 
because of His goodness to us. Even as an unbeliever, he gives, you've, you've been given life and breath and all things. You've been given the opportunity to hear the gospel this morning. So many things you've been given. Family. You might not have had everything you wanted. You might have lost some things you really want. But even as an unbeliever, God has been really good to us. And then as believers, we have a whole nother level of God's goodness and His grace to us in Christ Jesus. So the fear of the Lord is to esteem Him as holy, majestic, mighty. To esteem Him as God, not us. It's a joyful, delighted, trembling respect. A joyful, delighted, trembling respect of God. It's like a child with a good father. And I know that we haven't had, all had good fathers. And you may not even be a good father right now. I'd call on you to repent of that if that's true. But a child with a good father loves that father, imitates that father, wants to please that father, fears disappointing that father, obeys that father out of love and devotion primarily. See, why would a child be disappointed for displeasing? Because they love and it, hates them. it hurts them to think that they've disappointed that good parent. On a whole above level, that should be our attitude towards God for His gift to us in creation and providence and especially redemption in Jesus. See, the fear of God should be our interpretive grid so that instead of wearing me glasses, I wear Christ glasses, hopefully, Christ glasses, fear of God glasses. How does this thing look to God and how would He have me to walk through it? That's me being intentional to fear and love God. See, we just want things to happen. We just want to do things. We just want to do what feels right. That's not the Christian life. It's knowing and loving and serving God and walking in the way that He's commanded us to walk because of His grace to us. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But see, what I see everything through should be the fear of God. It should be the cross. It should be Christ. It should be the Word shaping and guiding my eyes so that my feet run in His commandments and my words flow according to His commandments. Put on your fear of God glasses and keep them on. See, as an unbeliever, we have to come to Christ and we'll talk about that in a minute. But as a believer, we go to God in repentance. We run to His throne of grace. We plead for forgiveness. And we put those fear of God glasses back on. And if you're like Ralphie and you almost shot your eye out and stepped on them and they're all busted up, He'll give you some new ones. Every time you repent, you go for an eye exam. According to the Word, get some new fear of God glasses. So that we see everything through this kind of love of God and love for God. What is the result in the life of the person that fears God? Job, quoting God, says this in Job 28, 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You know how I'll know you fear the Lord? Because you turn from evil and you walk as His commandments because you love Him. And your children should see you delighting in God this way. And when you fail, you tell them so. I can never tell my children I fail. Well, then you're not doing it right. When you sin, you confess it to God. You confess it to those around you. If you blah, if you blow up or whatever, 
you confess it. You ask for forgiveness. God, as part of the teaching. See, Paul points out that it is in the heart that leads to our words and deeds. And the sinful words and deeds flow from a heart that's not fearing God. As an unbeliever, there's a blanket statement, no fear of God before their eyes. As a believer, though, every time we choose sinful words or deeds, in that moment, we're not fearing and loving God. We've taken our fear of God glasses off and we've put on our me glasses. And let me tell you something else. You know which glasses you wake up with every morning? You wake up with the me glasses on. That's our default. We're not glorified yet. So that's why we need to ideally in the morning get before God in prayer and in the Word and take those me glasses off, receive cleansing and forgiveness and put on the fear of God glasses before we talk to anybody else before we leave the house. But the primary address here in this text is, is unbelievers who dishonor God with their words and their deeds because they don't fear Him. So let me ask you, what do we do with our sin? What is the answer for our sin? Well, today, watch these baptisms. Did you know that baptism is a means of grace? Did you know that in the waters of baptism, the gospel is proclaimed? This water of judgment that should have flooded over us, flooded over Christ so that it could be a water of cleansing representing His blood. The water doesn't do anything. It points to the blood that cleanses us. See the good news. Unbeliever, you're not trusting in Christ this morning. See the good news of the Gospel when we do the baptisms. Because what you're going to see is people identifying with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. And one of the reasons we think immersion is the best mode is because it pictures death. Burial and resurrection in Christ. Christ died for our sins. He took the penalty we deserve to pay. Every one of your sinful words and deeds, if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that the condemnation due those sinful acts was poured out on Him on the cross. That's why He died. He died, Scripture says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised the third day. You want to know how I know what I'm telling you is true? Because Christ was raised from the grave. And nobody has ever proved He didn't. That's a lot of talk. A lot of talk. And a lot of silly excuses. But the gospel and the resurrection is the most provable fact in history if you don't move, you use a double standard. Christ died, was buried, and was raised the third day. And He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. What does all that mean to you if you're not trusting in Christ? For God so loved the world. You know what that means? In this way or in this manner He loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes into Him shall not perish or suffer the condemnation they deserve, but shall have eternal life. Are you willing to turn from self in pursuit of your own way and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If so, you will be united to Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. Forgiveness is a free gift because God has paid for it. So give yourself to Christ and trust in Him. And you will know 
that you're forgiven and ready to face this God that you've been failing to fear. But believer, what does this do for me? Watching somebody be baptized. It reminds you. And it exhorts you. The, old, the Puritans used to talk about improving our baptism. What do they mean? Growing in grace. Owning the faith and growing in grace, right? So as you watch these two be baptized, you remember Christ died for you. He was buried for you. He was raised from the grave for you. And you were buried and raised with Him so that you have new life. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have everything necessary to fear God with your words and deeds. To fear Him in your heart. Because it was all a full and free salvation was purchased for you in Christ. And you receive it by faith, just as a free gift. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone this morning? If so, watch the baptisms and rejoice in your Savior doing that for you and you being united to Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And you can recommit to this new life. You can get a brand new pair of Fear God glasses this morning for free through the Gospel. Yes, as a believer, as we repent and receive cleansing and filling of His Spirit and new purpose in Him. And if you're an unbeliever, you can get your first pair of Fear God glasses this morning through turning and trusting in Him. So hopefully you picked up the answer to our fundamental question. Why do I do what I do and say what I say? It has to do with whether or not you truly fear the Lord. Whether you love Him and are devoted to Him. Whether you have on your fear God glasses. Lost people do not fear the Lord. And they do not turn from evil. That's exactly what we're calling on you to do this morning. Is to repent and trust in Christ. To turn to Him and receive Him as your Savior. Saved people do fear the Lord, but always need to grow in it. So that life of growth in grace has been purchased for you by the blood of Christ. Trust Him and live for Him. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. On those who don't know you this morning, I pray that you would draw them to faith. Help them to see that they can't answer for their sin by themselves before you. They will here depart from me. I never knew you. And Lord, those of us who know you, help us to take the gospel more seriously today than we've ever taken it. That Christ died, yes, to forgive us and cleanse us, but to purchase us for Himself, to empower us by the Holy Spirit of the living God through the Word of God that we might grow in wearing our fear God glasses more and more, that we might love You. You tell us if we love You, we will keep Your commandments. So convert those who are lost this morning. Grow those who are saved. Do what you need to do in each one of our hearts so that we can leave here with joy and peace in our hearts because we're rested in Christ who has lived and died and been raised for us. Therefore, we can relieve, leave here with more rededication, if that's what's necessary, to walking always with our fear of God glasses on. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. I pray for those who are being baptized. And I thank you for their testimonies and 
for their, their faith in you and just pray that you would bless and use them for your glory and that we would be a service to them. So be with them as they're baptized. Be with Corey and Mike as they assist in that and Corey as he leads. May every one of us benefit by witnessing this baptism or these baptisms which picture your death, burial, and resurrection for us, Lord, and our union with you in, in your death, burial, and resurrection, us being raised to newness of life. Help us, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that understand, hearts that love you, cleansed hearts, new hearts, faith-filled and fear-of-God-filled hearts so that we'll joyfully live for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.